Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Food, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Tippin, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Emily Wallace about her book, Roadsides, an illustrated companion to dining and driving in the American South, published October 2019 by University of Texas Press. Emily Wallace is a writer and illustrator with a master's in folklore who serves as art director and deputy editor of Southern Cultures Quarterly at UNC Chapel Hill and has written an illustrated work for other publications, including the Washington Post, Southern Living, the Oxford American, and Good. In 2015, Wallace was nominated for a James Beard Award in Humor Writing. That makes you my second James Beard Award nominee (laughs) interviewee. Emily has also contributed an essay to the volume, The Food We Eat, The Stories We Tell, edited by Laura Smith and Elizabeth Englehart, who are recent guests on the pod, as we say in the biz. Uh, So give that episode a listen. Emily, thank you so much for agreeing to speak with me today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, well, we always start the conversation with some background. Uh, This is sort of an academic podcast. We've got lots of academic listeners. Uh, And on your website, you describe yourself as a writer and illustrator with a master's in pimento cheese. Uh, And in fact, (laughs) this is how I first kind of became aware of your work uh, years ago in the Southern Foodways Alliance publication, Gravy. Uh, there's this woman who did a master's thesis on pimento cheese, and I thought she's got things figured out. <laughs> That's who I want to be. So maybe start out by telling us a little bit about your academic background. How did you kind of come to the study of folklore, and and what led you to thinking about food? Sure. Um, well, I went to a, I did my undergrad at a small uh, liberal arts school in Southwest Virginia, Emory and Henry College, and double majored in. Um, art and creative writing, and then went on to the School of the Art Institute of Chicago to finish a BFA in studio art. Um, But I was really looking for a way to combine my interest in art and writing, um, or sort of narratives and art, um, and came across the folklore program and thought it was a really, um, could be an interesting way to kind of, yeah, draw on both of those disciplines to tell stories. and went in not sure exactly what stories I was going to tell. I think living outside of the South for years um, in Illinois and then also in Michigan um, made me more interested in Southern stories um, and wanting to look deeper into those. I had no idea I was going to get into food studies, but kind of stumbled in it when I started grad school. Um, I took a class at the Center for Documentary Studies on food writing. And I really took it just thinking it was a writing class and I wanted to do more writing. Um, but we were tasked with documenting somebody in the food industry. It could be a chef or a farmer. or um, And when I had moved back to the South, I had started buying those bright orange tubs of pimento cheese that are just in grocery stores everywhere here. I grew up with them in Eastern North Carolina. Um, and suddenly in this graduate program where we were you know, tasked with questioning all these things, it dawned on me that I had no idea, you know, where this 
product that I'd spent my whole life with was made. Um, you know, seeing it with fresh eyes, having moved back. And it turned out it was just, it was a factory like 30 minutes down the road from where I was in, in grad school. So I worked with them for that semester in that class and it kind of <laughs> spiraled into a longer um, thesis project about the sort of cultural history of pimento cheese. That's amazing. And you've sort of stuck with food and food writing since then. Yeah. I mean, through that, you know, just that one product and, you know, beginning with that one factory realized how many different types of stories you could tell stories of labor, um, of women's work specifically of the textile industry in North Carolina, um, farming stories from pimento peppers, which I knew nothing about. Um, so I liked how many different, you know, stories we could tell how many ways, you know, obviously it touched, um, or yeah, just how many things it touched upon. Um, and so really became interested in food writing and food studies through that. Yeah. And maybe you can tell me what you think about this, but it sort of feels like you have one foot in kind of academic food studies and, and that sort of critical uh, cultural studies space and maybe one foot in this creative or popular writing. Would you kind of agree that that's the case? Yeah, definitely. Um, and that was the thing I liked about folklore too, is that, you know, it kind of allowed you to operate in these different worlds. I think just the sort of, um, you know, you could put this sort of scholarly lens on thing, but also, you know, or within community um, telling stories that matter to people. Not that that's not the case of other work, but just really being sort of embedded in that um, was something that appealed to me about about folklore and kind of the work. Yeah, I think a lot of us academics really wish we could do that more easily, right? Make that move <laughs> between those two worlds. Is there some sort of, like, is it something that you do purposefully? Is there a strategy involved in kind of bridging those audiences? Or does it feel more organic than that because of the subjects that you're working with? Um. I think a bit of both. I mean, I think especially coming out of art school and just sort of the quote high art world <laughs> that I was in for a few years, I was looking for something more um, community-based and focused and made a very conscious decision to kind of gear my work more towards that. Um, and then, and then it also is very organic with the kind of stories that I'm working with and telling. Um, and that's a thing that, in my day job, I am an editor and art director for Southern Cultures Quarterly, um, which has that same mission. So it's, it's actually become very embedded in my work. Um, that is a scholarly peer-reviewed journal, but that's geared toward a general audience. Um, so yeah. Do, yeah, very sort of readerly work. Um, I so it, want to ask you more about that later. <laughs> So where did the idea for roadsides come from? Roadsides. Um, it's funny. Some of the things that are in there are, you know, stories that I've been thinking about my whole life. It begins with a snow cone stand in Smithfield, North Carolina, where I grew up. It's a stand that looks like the snowballs it sells. It's just this giant food shaped building. Um, and I've written about it before, but I wanted to do more with it. And so there are places like that that I've just long thought about and then also <laughs> wondered why I keep thinking about them and wanted to investigate. And um, 
in some ways, the road just gave me a literal way to connect these different, you know, things I wanted to write about and also wanted to draw. Um, so that's kind of how I set off on that path. Yeah. So the, the, for our listeners who haven't seen it yet, the book is organized in these short chapters, one for each letter of the alphabet. Uh, and there's a brief kind of contextualizing essay for each one, and then a feature of a specific location or business or product. So how did that kind of organizational structure come about? Was that something that you kind of stumbled upon or was that a plan from the beginning? Uh, it became a plan pretty early on. I wanted it to be, um, well, I kind of think of the book as part encyclopedia. So, you know, it's the A to Z, short kind of informative essays, and then also part travelogue. So you have the books organized with these concepts. I'll use A as an example. Um, A for architecture is the history of food-shaped buildings. And then there's a place that corresponds. So in that case, it was going to that snow cone stand in Smithfield that I grew up with. Um, I liked the limitation of the letters too. I mean, there are a lot of things I could have included in the book, but it gave a way to kind of narrow it down. Um, and the structure too, um, I don't know, it was a creative challenge to come up with, you know, certain things that made me stretch into, I think, places and ideas I wouldn't have otherwise. That's great. I always imagine, you know, when you've got an alphabet like that, there's got to be a stretch, like one that you had to work really hard to find. Is there something like that? Uh, yes, <laughs> there, there are a few like that. Um, yeah, some that were K. I mean, there were obviously ones that were like Z or X were, yeah. um, but K was surprisingly hard. Um, I ended up doing kudzu which I thought was sort ah. of a throwaway. Um, just thinking, well, you can't drive throughout this, you know, parts of the South without coming across kudzu, you know, I can do something with it. Uh, and then K ended up becoming, I think one of my favorite sections in the book. Um, it turns out that kudzu is grown or often used along the roadside to sew up sort of loose soil when roads were put in place. Um, and so it has this connection to the road in a sort of more meaningful way than I was intending. And then it also has a kind of long culinary history. Um, I met a woman outside of Asheville, North Carolina, who's in her 90s. And she and her husband had started an intentional kudzu farm where they grew kudzu to bale to feed to their cows, um, kind of like hay. And then... Um, she also used it to, she made jam from like, um, the flowers. She, when we were together, made a kudzu quiche for us to eat. <laughs> um, just all kinds of things. Yeah. Well, and as someone who's driven from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania to West Texas, like there's a line where you think the kudzu appears and suddenly you yeah. know you're in the South again. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Well, I, um, it is also a beautiful uh, book. It's so bright and colorful and, and your illustrations are really, really adorable and also available at your website, right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> uh, are there any of the like favorite illustrations or things you said you were sort of looking, you wanted to draw this thing and that caught, led you to, lit, to put it into the book? What are some of those? Yeah, well, one thing that was fun with the illustrations for me is that um, 
sort of the interplay, you know, there are things that I didn't have room to write about because I was trying to keep things pretty short um, that then I could fit into a drawing or vice versa, you know, couldn't fit it into a drawing, but could expand on it in writing. Um, so that was, you know, something that I enjoyed about the process. Um, there were a lot of things I was able to quickly collage together as drawings. So in the letter Q, um, I write about barbecue because um, you kind of have to. And uh, one thing I was noting in the writing was that often you see barbecue restaurants on the science, like hogs that are dressed up in a bow tie or a top hat, or they have a crown. Um, so drawing had a lot of fun was, was doing a bunch of different signs, you know, that exist throughout the South of those kind of fancy pigs. <laughs> I think, uh, I think my favorite is the peanut pedestals. Yeah, that was, uh, that's another one. Yeah, collage, all these different sort of peanut landmarks that are, some of them are pretty great. (laughs) And there's something about that combination of like the alphabetical scheme, the illustrations, it almost has like the look and feel of a children's book. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it's clearly like aimed at a general audience uh, more than that. Maybe say a little bit more about kind of the audience that you were imagining for the book. I can definitely see the evidence of your scholarly connections and your folklore training and those critical lenses, uh, but sort of who did you have in mind? Um, I think just a general, like, interested reader. (laughs) Um, I mean, I did, you know, want the book, uh, you know, it it draws on a lot of original field work and that sort of thing, but it also pulls together a lot of different scholars' research. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, a hope was to distill it in a certain way, but you know, also, um, you know, I hope if somebody has interest in a particular essay or concept, then they can go to these sort of deeper. So think of it as kind of a primer in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I, I do hope it introduced some work to new audiences. Yeah. Well, let's sort of get into the book itself, maybe starting with R for Rhodes. <laughs> um, how would you sort of summarize that story of Southern roads and automobile tourism? We sort of take the whole book to get the whole picture. Uh, but is there something unique to the South about road culture or something unique in the development of mobility and transportation in the South? Um, I mean, one story that, uh, is in that section was the whole Dixie highway and, you know, this creating basically what was one of the first interstate systems um, or or roads um, that went from North to South um, and really drawn on Tammy Ingram's work there. But um, thinking about Carl Fisher and the road he built and sort of the, or the roads he connected, I should say. um, It's a huge story that I don't think a lot of people know about. And I've also read a lot of, you know, scholarly commentary about how the unpassable roads or the bad roads of the South really kind of stymied a lot of cultural development. You know, I've read even so far as to say like literacy in the South doesn't emerge because there's no roads for sharing newspapers and periodicals and et cetera. Is there more to that story? Yeah. Well, I was just going to, yeah, agree. I mean, write all of the impassable roads and sort of the delay in getting roads built here. Um, and not just for, you know, connecting 
well, it was huge in connecting the region to other reaches, but also in allowing people to leave, mm. um, which I think is an important part of the story too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it's definitely a celebration of Southern culture in the book, I think, but definitely not without criticism. So uh, there's a, a thread running throughout the book that there are really two different stories of Southern travel, right? Before the civil rights era, there are two very distinct experiences for black and white Southerners. And you, you return to that often. Uh, and then after Jim Crow and the sort of alleged <laughs> end of segregation, there's kind of a different story, a third story. Um, I think you get at it most directly in the D for directions and sort of V for vacancy sections. But mm-hmm. um, maybe for listeners, like what was highway travel like for African-Americans in the South during Jim Crow? And what were some of the ways that Black Southerners negotiated and innovated within that system? Sure. Um, yeah, the the section D for directions um, includes a lot about maps and sort of guidebooks. And so... Um, it begins with the blue book, um, which gave turn by turn instructions for um, I think predominantly white travelers to, you know, traverse the South. And it was everything from like warnings, you know, like up here you might, there's this dangerous curve. I mean, it's um, sort of spoken instruction for how people could drive. Um, and then you had for African-American travelers, you know, those, it didn't warn of all of the the dangers that were ahead, you know, like what's beyond not just a curve, but a place that's unwelcoming or perhaps violent. Um, and so the green book, you know, I think a lot more is known about that now, but um, yeah, that told travelers where it was safe to stay, safe to get gas, um, safe to eat or other kind of advice. Uh, and it, began not in the South, but quickly grew to um, include this region. I appreciated that you you really don't let the opportunity go by to point out those, especially racial disparities, uh, but also class. So maybe a good example of one of those moments is in the, the why for yonder <laughs> general store. Um, you While well, you cite a scholar who notes that the, the space was relatively desegregated, uh, you remind us that Emmett Till was murdered after an encounter with white people in, in such a store. So it's not always easy, I think, to do this in food writing for general audiences. So what do you think about that? How do you how do you walk that line between being entertaining and interesting and also being kind of serious and, and looking seriously at the real issues? Um, yeah, <laughs> um, that's a good question, but. I don't know if I have the exact answer how <laughs> I just knew yeah. that was something I wanted to try to do um, was look honestly at these places and tell, you know, the most full story that I could. So. Yeah, you know, I, don't I think, think everybody does that though. Right. I think you have to, I think you have to plan to do that a little bit. Do you think? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think um, at the least you have to set it as an intention going into it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, with yonder writing about, um, the country stores or, or sort of places off the beaten path. Um, you know, a big feature in this essay was about um, Cracker Barrel, which I think to at least a certain group of Southerners seems like a pretty nostalgic, you know, 
innocuous place, but clearly um, is tied to a much more complicated history um, of a place that isn't or wasn't always so welcoming, meaning the country store in general. And then, you know, Cracker Barrel also has its own history of being unwelcoming to people of certain races. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Are there maybe some other critiques that you think are kind of important to remember? I know in the, the South of the border attraction, it mm-hmm. gets a lot of attention in this way throughout the book. Um, there's just, again, that sense that the story is more complicated than the cute representations that were, we're used to. So what are some other maybe complications to the story of Southern culture or Southern road culture that we should be paying attention to? Um, I mean, I think, um, I feel like a bad road pun is in my, in my, (laughs) I can't get it out, but you know, like taking the exit and going further. Um, yeah, just sort of looking beyond what's, what's right there. I mean, South of the border, it's pretty, on the billboards themselves, like obvious that, that there's sort of something at play there um, Mm -hmm. with these for people who may not be familiar with South of the border. Um, It began as like a beer stand below the North Carolina border um, where there were dry counties. So you could literally drive South of the border and and purchase drinks at this roadside stand. Uh, And then it grew into this sort of big roadside attraction um, with all kinds of fireworks stores, um, games for children. Uh, what else do they have? Like gas and restaurants, all kinds of things, a million, uh, souvenirs, <laughs> but the <laughs> million souvenirs, but the, um, mascot for the park is Pedro. Who's a kind of stereotypical Hispanic man and who's constantly kind of poked at on the billboards. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, that the place just, I, I feel like that's something that most people might know from driving down and seeing the South of the border billboards because there are hundreds and hundreds on I-95. So you really can't drive it without seeing Pedro. Um, but yeah, there's just so much more to South of the border's history. I mean, what I didn't know, and I grew up along I-95, um, seeing these billboards and, and stopping itself on the border at different points in my life was just the, how complex that place was. I mean, um, Alan Shaper, who started it, there were also hotels on the property and he was very adamant about how it was a place where he didn't look at the color of your skin, just the color of your money. And so anybody could stay there before um, the segregation. And then at the same time, you know, he had a place called, I think it was Confederate land USA. And uh, there was a place called Pedro's plantation where people could come and experience picking cotton on South of the borders property. So Mm. yeah, there's a lot there. (laughs) Yeah. And it seems like emblematic of a a lot of, you know, ways that people try to deal with Southern culture in that you can love it and find that it's like charming and entertaining and important to you and also recognize that it's problematic and, yeah. um, and how do you live between those two spaces? Right, right, right. Yeah. I mean, the other part of South of the Border is that it has these really fun neon animal sculptures all over. So when you drive through, like, you know, it looks like this really cheerful kind of place on the one hand, but. Yeah. And I think there's sort of a temptation to, 
throw it out, right? Because of right. its problems right, right. rather than sort of look directly at them. Yeah. So another thread that I picked up on is the signage, as you just talked about the billboards, the visual culture of the road. Mm-hmm. Not something that I really thought about in the, that a book about food on the road would be so interested in the signage and all those visual things, but it makes sense from your background, right? <laughs> that, <laughs> Uh, starting with A for architecture and B for billboards and hyperbole and icons, all of those have that visual artistic component. Um, what are some of the visual or artistic elements that you found most interesting from your kind of artistic point of view, maybe? Um, man, there was not much I didn't find interesting. Right? <laughs> uh, I will say I had a harder time deciding what not to draw than I did what not to include, um, just because it did feel a little bit more open-ended. and. Yeah, I've always loved food packaging, um, kind of vintage signs and advertising. So it was fun to kind of get to draw on those things. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, a thing that was different for me was, um, beyond that, but to draw like the actual buildings or places where things are based. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. I think I liked the giant food items, right? Like the 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 snow cone stand that you mentioned that is a snow cone and the, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the strawberry stand that is a strawberry, but also the giant hot dogs. Right. <laughs> the peach water tower in South Carolina. Right, right. <laughs> I thought that was um, made up for House of Cards. I didn't know it was real. So thank you for that. <laughs> yes, it's very real <laughs> and quite funny when you drive past it. Yeah. Do you think those are, are those sort of America, American kind of travel things? Or do you think they have a specific Southern, uh, I don't know, employment? Are they used differently in the South or do they, they have something different? Um, that's a good question. Uh, I mean, I think, honestly, you can find these things all over. Mm-hmm. Um, we do have a lot in the South and a lot of really good examples of like, you know, that kind of architecture. Um, I'm thinking about the Powell's buildings, like the regional chain in Southwest Virginia and East Tennessee. It's a fast food chain that has a giant hot dog hamburger, French fry and soda sculpture attached to each of its like 30 buildings. Oh, wow. Um, it's pretty fantastic. But um, no, you, you can find these buildings everywhere. I was actually talking to a friend uh, not long ago, who grew up in Australia. And I guess there are a lot of examples of, of these types of buildings there too. Oh, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, I was thinking, so I kind of grew up on Route 66, uh, Amarillo, Texas, and mm-hmm. just south of there. Uh, and there's sort of an iconography of Route 66 neon that right. kind of is its own thing that might be separate from from the kind of things that we see on the Southern road trips. No, that's absolutely true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How about uh, junk? junk. <laughs> Is that how you pronounce it? <laughs> junk That's <head>. right. Junk. <laughs> yeah, the there was definitely a, a part of editing the book was there's a lot of switching around of what the letters were. So I think at first I had like trinket or tchotchke mm. um, or souvenir and then things shifted and eventually it became junk, um, which was a chapter about souvenirs and things we pick up along the way. Um, junk, actually, I took that from a south-of-the-border billboard. There's a 
an old billboard there that says, how, I think, how much junk, something about how much junk you can put in your trunk. Fill your junk. Wait, I'm going to get it. Fill your trunk <laughs> with Pedro's junk. Um, but yeah, thinking about the material culture and, and sort of um, things that we find along the way that we imbue with meaning, you know, especially from the places we visited. I was also interested in how, you know, throughout the book, you, you really draw these connections of uh, stories of innovation, technological innovation, entrepreneurial sort of innovation. Uh, many of the stories are about folks who come up with a new product or a new process or a new marketing strategy uh, mm-hmm. to sort of adapt to the world that's changed by car travel. Uh, maybe talk a little bit more about some of those. Are there some of those moments that you want to highlight for, for listeners? Yeah. Um, well, one really obvious one was um, that he came up a lot in the book because of his innovation was Colonel Sanders, mm-hmm. um, who you know, figured out a way to deep fry chicken pretty quickly and, and make it, you know, less of a Sunday dinner and more of a Tuesday afternoon lunch. Um, and yeah, I had a, had a franchise and really built out that business. And, you know, I think I like about him specifically for this book too, was that you know, he did fit into so many chapters um, because of his <laughs> innovations. I mean, he, his business began in a gas station that also had a motel. So it was really, you know, marketing to travelers. You need a place to fill up, um, a place to stay, a place to eat. Um, Another person, she wasn't in the South, but her business was later connected to it, was Laura Scudder, um, who is credited with coming up with one of the first uh, potato chip bags, which I just love. Yeah, Yeah, thinking about, like, you know, a way to keep potato chips crunchy, you know, instead of coming out of a cracker barrel or, a you know, um, tin that you might not travel so well. You actually have a potato chip bag. And her... Potato chips were marketed as, I think, the noisiest chips in the world, which, of course, you can't have noisy chips unless they're super crunchy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I was really interested in in the way that you sort of complicated this idea of food on the road. The obvious answer is like restaurant, 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 restaurant. But there's so many other other kind of uh, businesses that are connected to and supporting they're still food related, right? But they're, they're connected in other ways. Right, right, right. Yeah. It was also interesting to me that you, you really address the full range of like the ubiquitous chains, like McDonald's, Cracker Barrel, KFC, and the kind of small uh, little knowns like Bully's Restaurant in Jackson, Mississippi. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to a lesser extent, like the chefy or trendy people like Aaron Franklin. Mm-hmm. Uh, so how did you kind of pick those spots to feature? Um, I really wanted it to be uh, geographically diverse. So for the main letters, I think I spread it out in southern and, and border states. There are about two per state. There's three in North Carolina, just because I'm based here and know more about it. <laughs> uh, and also Georgia had three, I think. Um, and so in some cases, you know, there was an example that may have been I mean, I could have done the whole book in North Carolina, you know, like just through North Carolina stories. And there may have been an example that fit the theme better, but, you know, I needed to spread it out 
Mm. Um, and I did feel the same about chains or sort of a mom and pop place um, that I wanted there to be a range of those two. I, you know, I think the chains can be laughed off in some ways, but they are equally important and tell a, you know, a big story in the region. Yeah, especially um, so, like you mentioned with Cracker Barrel having like a, a cultural influence that's beyond just the place to stop. Right. Yeah, and that that was an edit I had gotten was to take out some of the chains, but um, no, I do think their story is important, and especially when you're thinking about innovation, as you mentioned. I mean, I think you know there was almost like a there was real competition there to see who could do it better, and and it did. You know, that competition influenced a lot of what we see today. Um, yeah. Remind me of the the fastest ones. Is that Powell's Sudden Service? Yeah, the fastest, right? Powell's Sudden yeah. Service in, from East Tennessee. Yeah, they're ranked as one of the fastest drive throughs in the nation. Um, or when you look at Wendy's, I think they were one of the first to really, um, they were the first to put a drive through window, but they really like went for it and put one in all of their their restaurants kind of before that was the thing. Um, and it hugely like impacted their profits, but also hugely impacted kind of the landscape. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I think that's something that you really draw out in those stories is not just how they, you know, how they respond to the landscape, but also how they kind of affect or change what right. comes next. Right. What are some of the other kind of threads or connections that you see between the stories? Were there other, you know, larger stories that you wanted to tell through the connections? Um, hmm. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think of a specific, I mean, I think, yeah, innovation. It's funny that you say that, but, um, I hadn't really thought of that as a big theme. And now that you've said it, yeah, yeah, there's so many innovators in here in all kinds of ways. Um, that's really interesting. That's yeah. funny. I didn't think about it in that way, but yeah, so many. Yeah. What about like immigrant stories? I know you focus on a lot of, uh, a lot of innovators who come from other places. Do you want to yeah. talk a little bit about those? Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, I was trying to think of a good example. I mean, one person I read about is Eduardo Chavez, who lives on the Outer Banks of North Carolina on Ocracoke Island, um, which is a, I guess, 14 miles long island. It's only really inhabitable in a sort of two mile stretch, the rest of its national seashore. So there's not a lot of room for actual physical, to, you know, places to put a brick and mortar restaurant. Um, and where it is, it's really expensive to do so. Um, and Eduardo moved to the island, started this, eventually started this taco stand in a sort of movable trailer and kind of challenged the sort of traditional like fried seafood platter places, which is a lot of what you have on the island. Um with these amazing fish tacos. He started out doing just traditional, like sort of beef and chicken tacos 
um, that he thought people on the island would like. And then was like, I'm surrounded by ocean. I'm going to make these fish tacos. And it's really a story of um, him taking this sort of movable stand and making it a permanent structure. I mean, I think it's become this huge institution on the island. Um, and uh, I think he dealt with some struggles and originally, like putting the restaurant there. Um, it's a largely white population. Um, traditionally on Ocracoke. And, you know, I think as a Hispanic man, um, yeah, he, he did, he dealt with some racism uh, practices that he kind of goes into detail and I write about in the book. Um, but, but yeah, brought this amazing food to the Island mm-hmm. and it's really become a permanent fixture there. And the Island itself, uh, I should say, uh, has changed too. Um, there's a, a pretty large Hispanic population there now too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and maybe similarly, uh, the Buford highway as a, mm-hmm. a, a destination now almost for variety of like ethnic foods and et cetera. So talk a little bit more about that space. Yeah. Um, Buford highway in Atlanta, uh, it's just a, just a really, corridor of different flavors um trying to think how many restaurants are there but yeah tons and tons of um different restaurants are right about a place called the crawfish shack which you know sounds like something out of louisiana but it's in this landlocked strip um it's the created by uh hugh fam who is a he was born in Atlanta, son of uh, Vietnamese immigrants, and had learned how to steam crawfish. And his restaurant is, you know, in this little strip mall is surrounded by, I think, an Indian restaurant, a uh, Mexican restaurant, and there's another restaurant right there. But just like in this one little strip mall, you have all of these different cuisines kind of coming together. Yeah, and, and I think there's a lot of uh, food media that's kind of trying to highlight that diversity that maybe has always been present in the South. Yeah, absolutely. It, another thing I was going to say about Buford Highway, too, is, you know, unlike in a lot of cities where you have uh, Chinatown or like a little Italy or somewhere, you have all of these kind of things, not in a you know pocket against pocket against pocket, but like kind of crammed together on this one stretch or in this one strip mall or. Um, that's pretty interesting and wonderful. Yeah. One of my favorite things about studying food is that I get to do a lot of things, uh, and call it research. Like Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I stood in line at Franklin's in Austin for six hours and that was research. Uh, (laughs) Ate at a New Orleans themed, uh, restaurant in Boston. Drank (laughs) a bunch of Sazeracs. That was research. That Uh, sounds like good research. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and it sounds like that's what you're doing too, right? A lot of the stories that, that you're writing about in the book are trips or stops that you've made in the name of research or along the way to do some other research. Uh, what are some of your kind of favorite research moments? Um, well, a definitely a fun research moment was um, for the letter E, which is about entertainment and sort of roadside attractions. Um, traveled to outside of Tampa, Florida 
to Wikiwachi Springs, which is a uh, attraction. I think it started in the forties. I have to double check that date, but um, where there's a really deep natural spring and women dressed as mermaids dive into this natural or into the spring and perform tricks for an underwater theater, including like eating a banana underwater or drinking a gray pet soda upside down. Um, I included that and I, it's a featured place. And I thought, oh, I have to interview a mermaid for this, <laughs> <laughs> which um, turned out really difficult to do. I kept calling and they were like, eh, I don't know. Maybe if you come, you can talk to a mermaid. I'm not sure. But in just a kind of funny small world thing, I had gone to Tampa. I was in baggage claim at the airport um, and ran into a woman I knew from Durham, North Carolina, where I'm based. And she was like, why are you here? And I was saying, you know, doing this project. She was there for a bar mitzvah. And she said, well, actually, also tomorrow I'm going to drive out to this place where there are these mermaids. I was like, me too. Like, why are you going there? And it turned out her boss's daughter from North Carolina was a mermaid. Um, so in a small world thing, I, I got to text with a mermaid and then interviewed her the next day. But. <laughs> I liked the mermaid story. I found it really interesting that that she was thinking of it in terms of like how to teach kids about global warming and climate change. Yeah. I mean, right. Like, A, I didn't think it, you know, it was how to connect it as a food story. They have these tricks that they do underwater, you know, like I said, eating the banana and drinking the soda and whatnot. But she really, Victoria Cox, the mermaid I interviewed was thinking about it, uh, about her work more as, you know, children don't always want to hear about climate change or global warming or sustainable seafood or, you know, X, Y, and Z. Um, but she did think they would listen to a mermaid <laughs> and her goal is to create, you know, kind of a fun school or place where children could come and learn about sort of these more complicated topics in a really like, I don't know, entertaining, um, and yeah, uh, yeah. creative way. Yeah. I so think she, she made the connection. Yeah. I was just saying she made the connection more, you know, than I originally thought you know, it would be, but to those sort of issues and and things that are important to me. Yeah. Yeah. It just seems like another one of those moments where you've uncovered a complexity where it appeared no complexity could be. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's a, well, obviously there's a lot to this, but you know, it was the, um, the section on entertainment and it became, you know, obviously way more than just being entertained. Yeah, totally. So maybe to kind of wrap up, talk a little bit about your work with Southern cultures. You mentioned it at the beginning as sort of a, a peer-reviewed scholarly journal, but also uh, looking outward to um, a general audience. Talk a little bit about, about that journal. Yeah, Southern Cultures, um, published by UNC Press. Uh, we just entered our 26th year of publication. And um, it was very much founded with the idea of being a scholarly peer-reviewed journal, but that attracted a general audience. Um, And, you know, that's something we work pretty hard at. So taking jargon out of essays or um, writing in a way that it would be engaging to a general, a general reader. Um, We do a lot of, we've started in the past couple of years doing a lot of themed issues. Um, So, 
Um, we just wrapped up a documentary issue. Um, we're working on an art issue right now. Um, all kinds of subjects, <laughs> doing an environmental issue, um, a women's issue this fall. What do you think attracts general audiences to a, a peer-reviewed journal like that? Um, I mean, I think the thing that we see is that, you know, we have a lot of readers who are curious about the South or um, about topics that we cover and want something in depth. You know, I think there are a lot of Southern magazines or um or even newspapers that publish stories that kind of get you interested, but can only go so far because of certain restraints of, you know, that type of publishing. Um, and so, you know, I think our readers really want a deeper story. They want the complex history um, and it's an accessible place for them to find it. I mean, you, you know, um, they're not the reader that's going to pick up the journal of American history to learn about this, you know, certain topic necessarily, which may go into deeper or specific for what they're interested in. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, our mission is taking that scholarship to the public. And it's very beautifully presented. The website is, is really attractive. I think engaging as well. Yeah. yeah I mean, we try to very yeah. intentionally mimic some of those other, not mimic, but I mean, we have to compete with, um, to be frank, some of the other, you know, magazines, um, that general readers are reading. So, you know, we do appear different in that way too. Yeah. And I wondered related to that, I wondered if that was maybe why did you like seek out an academic press for roadsides for some of the same reasons or. Um, yeah, absolutely. I, you know, it's a book that I wanted to be peer reviewed and, <laughs> and go through that process and be helped. I mean, I know what that process can do um, working with it every day. Um, and I, I wanted it to, yeah, tell these, like I said, sort of scholarly stories, but, um, geared to a general audience. And I, I, I did think they could help with that. Yeah. What other projects are you working on next? Um, I've just been doing a, a bunch of, um, sort of freelance stories, uh, trying to think, um, what I've done recently, I've got pandemic brain. Mm. Um, <laughs> Don't we all? <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I've been doing some stories for our state magazine, which is a magazine here in North Carolina, um, some different food stories for them. And that's been a lot of fun. Although I haven't been out traveling any, obviously mm. I've been sitting at home with, uh, yeah. 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 <laughs> I thought about that a lot while I was reading too. I was like, Oh man, I remember when I used to drive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now I, yeah. <laughs> And go, go to a restaurant. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so it's very different. Yeah. Great. Well, we've been talking today with Emily Wallace about her book, Roadsides, an illustrated companion to dining and driving in the American South, available from University of Texas Press. Uh, thank you so much, Emily. I had a great time talking with you today. Thanks so much. I really appreciated being here. 